This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Now I make sure it's running. We're in Exodus 20, picking up where we left off. Um, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So we're going to get into, those are the, I just read through the first couple commandments so you get a sense of where we're at. Chapter 19, for those of you that weren't here last week, is really important to get before you get the law. The whole chapter before this is about the covenant. And it's really important to grasp the idea that the covenant was a bigger deal than the law because that's what Jesus does. He comes into an era or a culture where they're all about the law and he helps them refocus on the covenant. The point is a loving relationship with God. So that journey is well underway. God has already redeemed them. He's guided them. He's protected them. He's delivered them. He's fed them. He's watered them. And like a Chia pet, he wants them to grow, right? <laughs> he's brought them to himself in chapter 19. So the whole journey of Exodus comes up to this point where he gives the law. This is important because we deal with legalistic people all over the place in our church, right? And legalism is a sin, and it's not good. It's important to note that this journey of Exodus, way before people get to the law, they get through all of those other stages, and we as believers should do that too. Before we're too worried about the law, we should first come into relationship with God. And that's pretty much every letter Paul wrote in the New Testament, is that you really have to focus on that covenant with God and that that law is something that actually has a deadness to it. But when you come to it in love, with God, it's not dead at all. It's amazing. And it sets up a new kind of thing. So I say that because I have a pet peeve, as you know, with people who say the Old Testament is irrelevant. And people that say the Old Testament is this harsh, cruel, mean God. The Old Testament God does not give the law until he's got people that have already said, we want to serve you. Remember that from last chapter? Then he gives the law. The law to people that aren't saved, Paul says, is not relevant, right? And the law to people who haven't heard it before is not convicting. So the point of the law is to change our hearts. I thought of a metaphor. It was really tough for me. As a parent, you're watching your wee ones grow up. Sorry, Grant and Katie. (laughs) And let's say your wee ones do something bad in your definition or in God's definition. They don't know it's bad. They're just doing it. They're coloring on the walls, say. You have, I think, four choices as a parent. And knowing your tools when your parent is a good thing. The first thing you do is you wait and you watch and you see if they continue to do it. Then you have a pattern. And if you have a pattern, you have to deal with that pattern. In Exodus, we've seen a pattern of the people complaining, right? They keep complaining all the time. Number two, you ask your kids, what do you think about coloring on those walls that I so carefully painted last week, right? And you see if they have a conscience that the Holy Spirit's put in them yet. If not, if they're just wee little sinners in your home, 
then you try to encourage that. The third option is you see if you can talk them through a process where they can see what's wrong with coloring on the walls. Do you think you can figure this out? And God's already done all that with the Israelites. Then you come to the fourth thing. They keep coloring on the wall. They do it the next day and the next day. You've tried to talk it through with them. You've tried to say, there's a covenant here. I provide you a home and you don't color on it, right? That's the covenant. And you try that relational thing first, but they just keep coloring on the walls. At some point as a parent, you have to make a rule. There is a new rule in this home. If you color on the walls, I will take away your crayons. If you continue to do color on the walls with other tools and devices, there will be consequences and punishments. That's where the law comes in handy, is when you have people that continue to infract on the covenant. And the Israelites have done that. All of humanity has done that forever. My other example was picking your nose and wiping it on the walls, but I went with coloring on the walls because I thought it was a little more appropriate. And we always joke in our family whenever we're out at a park or something and they have signs like, don't crawl over the fence that leads to a 500-foot canyon. And we laugh because there'll be like a little stick figure crawling over the fence. And we always say they wouldn't make a sign unless some idiot had done that, right? So those are two perspectives that color how we should come at the law a little bit. God wouldn't make a sign unless all of humanity had fallen down this path. And with Noah, we saw in Genesis, all of humanity did fall into this path. They're, we're nasty to each other when we're not in the Holy Spirit. So verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, everything I just said is part of the word and at the beginning of this verse. And means there's something that went before the law that goes with it. It's a conjunctive statement. And the English teachers, you all know that. But I don't know if it's conjunctive or conjunction, something like that. And means God is still speaking to the people. If you go back up to verse 21 in the last chapter, God has come down from the mountain. There is a light show going on with lightning. There is storm. There is noise. There are trumpets. And God speaks. And the people are quaking in their boots. But this is what he says to those people right to their faces. So two million people hear God speak the law right off the bat. Not exactly done in secret. Bless you, Alyssa. God spoke. So Moses is saying God did the speaking here. And that creates this holy terror. And then we get into the law. So one question I had is, why do we need to study the law at all? Because Galatians 3 says it's annulled. The law doesn't count anymore. Romans 7 says it binds only dead people, not alive people. So the New Testament's pretty harsh on it. Romans 8 says we're led by the Holy Spirit now as believers, not by the law. So why in the world would we even do that? Even 1 Timothy 1 says the law is immoral. It actually is only for other people or immoral people to show them where they're wrong. So one reason why we study it is because, remember, the Israelites don't know anything about this God they're following, right? This is elementary, basic stuff. And God saying, God is speaking these words, we're learning about God that he's personal and that he can actually speak to people, unlike all of the gods of Egypt. None of those gods actually talked to people. Or if they did, they, they were hearing things, right? So why does it matter to us as Christians what it has to say? One is, the more we fall in love with God, the more we're interested in what God has to say. What kind of God is he? So if I tell you not to color on my walls, you're learning something about me. I'm a person that likes neatness and order, and I don't want color crayons all over my wall. So you learn about the goodness of God when you find out what God doesn't want right? All these words are accurate. Verse one, all these words uh, means that we have a, roughly at this time, there would have been 
say 100 million people on the planet if you just take basic growth rates. And with about 100 million people on the planet, having about 2 million of them here, about 2% of the population is hearing directly from God of the entire planet. So in Deuteronomy 5, it says, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire, which was in chapter 19. God came from power, fire, and storm and spoke these words. As a Christian, I kind of want to know what that God had to say, right? The judgments which he speaks, Deuteronomy 5.1, Moses names himself as the writer when we hear the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Here, Moses names God as the writer. And there are slight differences. Moses puts in commentary when you read the same Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, however, is laid out, and this is cool, and we're not doing Deuteronomy tonight, but the whole book of Deuteronomy is laid out like a marriage contract. So if you look at ancient marriage contracts and you look at Deuteronomy, it's the same genre, same form, which is kind of cool. This is not, this is laid out like a history book, and it's written that way. So all these words, Deuteronomy may add more detail, but we get the simple and direct version from God, and almost every time Jesus cites the Old Testament and the law, He's going from this version, not from the Deuteronomy version. Does that make sense? So that said, this is probably the most epic part of the Bible that we've got to so far. We had the creation. That was pretty epic. We had the flood. That was a big deal. Now we have the law. And the next big thing that's going to happen in the Bible, which maybe we'll make it so we have half as many people next week, is Jesus. Like, we've got a long way to go before the next big event. But God speaking to humanity, that's huge. And follow this, because I think it's cool. And for those of you that like history, you'll think this is cool. If you take the creation, the flood, the law, and then you put Jesus and the resurrection, the church, and the new, the second coming, you have three on one side, three major events on the other side with Jesus right in the middle. It's a menorah in history. So it's kind of cool, and we're at the third little candle on the menorah if you get into that sort of thing. Also, if you take that whole thing, three on one side, three on the other with Jesus in the middle, All of human history is in chiastic form, which is even cooler. So we're at that kind of point. Why should we listen to the law? Because of that. So Jesus refers back to Genesis in Matthew 5, and he talks to his disciple. And in verse 1, he says, he is the fulfillment of the law. And when Jesus comes the first time, he helps us put the law in our hearts. And when he comes the second time, he's going to judge and enforce the law. In Matthew 5.19, and I'm still going through why do we need to learn the law, Matthew 5.19, another reason is we are commanded to teach other people the law. Like when we see somebody kill somebody, we're supposed to say, hey, it's not okay to kill. And when we do that, we teach the law to the people around us and we convict them of what they're doing that's wrong. So it's important for us to know because in Matthew 5.19, we're commanded to teach others what this law says. It's an issue of the heart. We're supposed to go into it with a full heart. And in in verses 38 through 48, all of Matthew 5 basically says it's our job to do more than what the law says. So if we just do the law, we're not really following Jesus. We're supposed to do more than the law. That makes it really convicting. So as I went through these, I discovered in my own heart, I break every one of the Ten Commandments almost every day. If I take it to Jesus' level, and that's how we're going to do this this week and next week, we're going to take it at the level Jesus presented this to his disciples, which was so convicting because you're like, dang, I can't do anything right. But in a godly relationship with God, that makes it so you say, okay, I just want to get a little better today. I want to keep getting more and more like God. Malachi 1.9 says another reason you do this is so that you entreat God's favor that he might be gracious to us 
While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Another reason we study the law, not only to humble ourselves and to teach other people to humble themselves, another reason we do it is so God can be gracious to us. The degree to which we attempt to fulfill the law is the same degree to which God gives us grace. If you doubt that at all, look at any believer's life story after 20, 30 years and just be like, dang, look at what God does in these people's lives. It's amazing. So if you're following God, you can't help yourself from wanting to know the law. When you meet somebody who's like, ah, we don't need to study the law, you're probably dealing with somebody that doesn't have very deep roots, and frankly, they don't really want to pursue God. They're finding excuses for not studying the law. But a real believer is like, okay, I'm at the point, as much as it hurts, I really want to get into this. So verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. That's the premise. If he's your God, this matters to you. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Notice those are two different phrases. Um, and we learn something about God. And again, elementary. These people wouldn't have known what kind of God they were dealing with. It's a powerful God. They saw the Red Seas get parted. They saw the plagues. They saw terrible death and destruction. And now this God says, I'm your God. That's a totally different face for you. And we just take that for granted as believers today in the church age with the Holy Spirit. They didn't. That would have been like totally revolutionary compared to like Ra, the sun god of Egypt. This God says, I'm your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God reminds them of the history that's there. And one way to read that isn't that out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage are the same thing said two different ways. One way to read it is those are two very different things. Bringing them out of Egypt and then bringing them out of bondage are two different acts of God that he's naming there. That's important for us because he breaks, takes us out of bondage too. And the bondage we have to deal with is sin. We all have to deal with it. But we don't know what sin is unless we learn this. Geekdom, at the same period in history, the Babylonians, a small group of people way over here, wrote their own code of law too. Does anybody know what it's called? Confucius. That's even further to the east. Confucius is writing some stuff. Hammurabi's code is being written at the same time. So ancient peoples are starting to write down these rules for society. The difference is, if you take a good look at Hammurabi's code, almost every precept in Hammurabi's code brags about how awesome Hammurabi is. <laughs> Hammurabi, the great king of majesty, says, don't draw on my walls, right? So that's Hammurabi stuff. This law is totally different. Moses isn't bragging about himself. In fact, Moses is out of the equation right now. This is just God speaking. There's a treaty that gets formed, or a Suzerian vassal treaty uh, in the Near East, and the form of the Ten Commandments fits that mode of that time of writing. So they're writing this as though this is a treaty between humans and God. And then last but not least, in Galatians 3.24, the form of this is a that of a schoolmaster. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We have a lot of teachers in the room. Teachers have to make rules, right? And this is God teaching his people how to follow the rules. Why? Because we might be justified by faith, but after that faith has come, we're not under the schoolmaster anymore. The whole point of a teacher is you make yourself useless. By the end of the semester, by the end of the year, by the end of 13 years of high school, they can go off and do things on their own. They don't need teachers anymore. The point of the law is to teach us so that we can live our lives and not need it anymore because we just live in a certain way. So the Ten Commandments. The scriptures, these are called the Hasarat Hadavarim or the 10 words or the 10 utterances, right? 
In rabbinical writings, they usually refer to the Ten Commandments as the Hazaret Hadad Barret, which is slightly different. And in Christian theological writings, this is called the Decalogue. Deca for ten, and obviously that comes out of Greek. Um, so, and it comes from Decalogos or the Ten Statements, which are found in the Septuagint, Exodus 34, and if you want to cross-reference Exodus or Deuteronomy 10 is where you can find them in another spot. So the translation of this to the Hebrew name uh, comes into the Decalogue. The Jews for the Torah has a total of 613 commandments throughout the whole Old Testament. There's 613 rules you got to follow. These are the top 10. And you should think of them that way. They're the top 10 list. And if that's intimidating to you, just be thankful you're not Jewish. Because you've got to learn all 613 of these laws if you're a proper Jew, right? If you follow Jesus, he said you can sum them all up. Love God, love your neighbor. And that's why people like me become Christians. Because I can memorize two really easy. So I'll say this too, and I, I know I'm taking a long time digging into this one. The Ten Commandments are a mirror as to everything we do wrong. So if it's your first time, I'm really sorry about that. Um, most of the time you hear a little bit more about God's grace, but if this is a mirror, you should get ready to be convicted. And my goal is to make everyone come to that same hopeless point that I came to, which you think, I break every law almost every day. At that level, if we really take this, and I'll show you where I get there, if that's true, then we're all pretty guilty and we all deserve hell. So welcome to Bible study. Um, <laughs> Part of reading chapter 20, you should prepare yourself to be like you're getting convicted of a crime. And at some point, humble yourself and go, yeah, I am. I'm guilty of that. If I'm honest with myself, I'm guilty of it. The way I get there is then each of these things, what I noticed when I went through them and started looking up the Hebrew, almost every one of the Ten Commandments is a primitive root word with a conditional clause. Some of them don't even have the conditional clauses, right? If you look at five, six, and seven, it's just one word. And it's this big, broad, primitive, sweeping generality, which is why when it says don't murder, and we'll get to this when we get to murder too, Jesus says, man, this is more than a, just about actually killing a human being. The word is a primitive root word. And he says, this is about if you even think somebody's an idiot, you're guilty of murder according to Jesus. That's pretty harsh. But all of the commandments, Jesus only went into two of them. All of them are in primitive root form and you can take it to that level with all 10. And I hope to do that. So commandment number one, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember he's talking to people coming out of Egypt. If you've got a God in your life, those gods don't get jealous. This God does. That's one way we can get to know God. Think about it. If you're in love with automobiles, sorry, Paul. You got a beautiful convertible in your garage. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> And you adore that convertible and you elevate it to the point where you give it your worship. You think about it. You love it. You tenderly wash it. You kiss it when nobody's looking. We don't. Right? <laughs> if you do that, that car will never be jealous of your SUV or even your bicycle. Cars don't get jealous. They're inanimate, empty objects. This is a God that says, you don't get to have other gods before me. I want that place in your heart. And if he's the creator of the universe, he deserves that place. So he's basically saying, I want to have that place. It's like a school teacher saying, I am going to be the boss of this classroom. And you got to kind of deal with that. And we can make that a loving relationship or we can make that a very difficult one based on how we react to God, right? 
You is a second person singular. So it is not you in general, usted in Spanish, it's you in particular, right? So each individual is responsible for themselves, not heads of household. So when God speaks to 1% of the population, he's speaking to, did I say usted? Are you laughing because I used the wrong one? Ustedes? Damn it. That's, that's why I taught education and not Spanish. Nosotros. Usted is the singular, right? Nosotros yeah. is we. Vosotros. Vosotros is you plural, and usted is you singular? Formal singular. She just smiles. She doesn't say anything. She's just like, dickers. Humans are made to worship. We do it all the time. This commandment's the first one because it's the hardest one. In the same way, if you look at like Shadow, the dog, he seeks food, tennis balls. He wants to be in a pack. He gets sleep when he needs it, and he likes safety. So he'll tuck his head under your arm to go to sleep, right? Animals are really simple. But humans, what's different about humans is we worship things. We get excited about things to come. Right? The next Marvel movie starts to come out. We stir about that. And we have to be really careful because when that becomes what we live for, that's a really depressing, empty life. And we go after gods all the time. But this is the natural outcome of who God is. If God creates a relational being to him, he's going to create a being that seeks to worship. Right? And the natural outpouring of that worship should be God. You shall have no other gods before me. The word before me means in my face. And I thought that was really interesting. It means the face, in the presence, in the sight of, and it even means in contrast or against God. You shall have no other gods in my face. Don't put them in front of me. Because when you put something between you and God, you're putting it in God's face as much as you're putting it in his face. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Why do we worship as human beings? I think we worship because we're looking for joy. And when we look forward to, say, a Friday night party on the beach or something, what we're hoping for at that party on the beach is a joyful night, right? And whatever comes in that sense, we're not looking to God for that. So a party on the beach, even if it's non-alcoholic, can become an idol for us. It can become something we look forward to, we pine for it. In a root primitive turn, we can accurately determine when somebody worships something based on what they spend their hope on, what they spend their time on, And frankly, if you open up your pocketbook over the last year, if I can look at your finances, I can tell you what you worship. What do you spend your money on? Because you're hoping to get joy out of what you spend your money on. What do you spend your time on? You're hoping to get joy out of that. And where are you spending your worship and your hope? And where does that go to? So that's hard for me because I've spent a large part of my life hoping for and looking for life in other things, right? And it's amazing to me how this has just invaded our church all of our churches, right? You get people today that all they could talk about was the Vikings game. You're not just looking forward for joy in a good Vikings season. Some people, that's where they look for their joy. And they're not turning to God for it. They're putting the Vikings in the face of God. And that's a hard thing. And if this is convicting, it's, sorry you came this week. So I can look at your finances and I can see where you go. Frankly, the Baals of Canaan are all financial gods. They're all things you spend money on, right? I can review all the time that you spent and where your spare time went. If you want to grow in your faith, do an inventory. Look at your money, look at your time, clock it, time it, figure out what you're doing. 
and try to, I think God's so good. He doesn't ask you to go like whole hog. Just take 10 more minutes a day and make it sacred for God. And what you'll find is you're so blessed by grace in doing that, that you're taking that little percentage of time and not putting other things in the face of God. He's just going to anoint and bless that and he'll reward it. And some of you have seen that after a year of Bible study. You're like, yeah, actually, I don't know how, but listening to that dork teach the Bible, it actually makes, it feeds my soul in this amazing way. And that's a good thing. Praise the Lord. So if you want to do that, you can, and you can figure it out. And then you can come back next week and tell us like, what are some of the things you identify that you're taking? And you're going to make that, give that back to God. I thought, and I was thinking of this, everything the world promises, they promise joy in everything they deliver. Take this drug and you'll get joy, whether or not it's a TV commercial or it's illicit. Have this event and you'll have joy. Go to this thing, listen to this music, see this movie, take this class, get this major, take get that job, and you'll have joy in your life. But at the end of the day, all the world ever delivers is more trials. God's the exact opposite. He promises you trials and testing, and all you get is more joy when you follow the Lord. It's totally the opposite. And I just thought that was a cool thought. So the positive thing is you get God. The negative part of this particular command is you don't get other gods. Not if you want to be a Christ follower. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says you should run from idolatry. If there's anything in your life that gives you more joy than God, you should run the heck away from it. Right? Colossians 3.5, you should kill it in your life. It's better to chop your hand off if it's causing you to sin than to keep going. And I don't think they actually, you don't see a lot of Christians with missing hands. The point is, if you got some sin in your life, get the heck away from it. Kill it. If it's something you're watching on a TV, get rid of the TV set, right? If it's some, it's a place you drive to all the time, have somebody else take your keys. Like, you know, like you be my designated key person, right? It's a mark of the old life, 1 Peter 4, 3, and you're not even supposed to hang out with people that are idolaters, 1 Corinthians 5, 11. People that do this stuff, don't spend your time with them. Hang out with other people that love the Lord and love the Bible. The principle here is the first thing is God rules. Okay, that's just one commandment. And I'm like, I'm guilty as sin. <laughs> Actually, literally, right? I'm totally guilty of this. I do it all the time, right? In fact, even when I geek out on stuff and I'm looking up Chick-fil-A stuff, I think that's next week, I'm totally into Chick-fil-A stuff. And I pray that that's designated to the Lord, but I get so into research that I make that my idol. I get so into pride, I make that my idol. I'm just going to confess it all, people, right? We gave up football because I was so into football after playing in high school, I spent 20 years watching NFL football, remembering my glory days. Run from it. We haven't watched football in four years. What a blessing it's been in my life. And for football fans in the room, I'm not saying you got to seek this out on your own. I think there's people where that's not an idol. For me, it's a total idol. So I hear people at church talking about sports and I just walk away because I can't do it. It's total sin for me. I get more life out of sports than I did from God. And all sports deliver is disappointing seasons where they don't win. Amen. Right? <laughs> and all the Bible delivers is fruit and blessing and friendships and loyalty and love and caring and compassion and joy and peace and hope. Why would I spend one more minute on something that's empty and dead? Commandment number one. Commandment number two, if you're ready for more. Yes. <laughs> Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that's in earth beneath, or water under the earth. Just in case you wanted some you know, designators, it's anything. Don't make carved images. 
5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We already talked about jealousy. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not make. Make is the word asa. It's a verb. In case we haven't seen the word asa before, it gets used over 1,300 times throughout the Bible. To make something's a common word here. It is to do, it's a primitive root word, the same things, any kind of making or creation, right? And I'm going to help Alyssa out here because this is not talking about art, right? It's to deal, to commit to, to offer, to prepare, to get, to wear something, to maintain something. We're not just talking about hacking out little totem poles, right? We're talking about any to make is to do anything where you are creating or giving something to yourself as a carved image right? This could be idolizing clothing, right? Because it includes that in the primitive root. This could be to idolize, to, to, to perform. This could be to be a theater star and take pride in your own acting skills, right? Like a diva, okay? It could include any activity in life that you're putting up before God. So put God first and then take any activity in your life that you put out beside God. The carved image piece is special, which actually means a graven or idolatrous image. Something that you look to or see that gives you that hope or whatnot. Anything we look at. So if God's to be worshipped in word and in song, not in images, God's not superficial, so we can't make an image of him. He's completely full, so there's nothing we can make that would represent fullness because everything we make is a littleness because we're little. Does that make sense? Okay. It, 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 is, it is about heaven, earth, or water, which I think is just another way for the Bible to say nothing, no, no images. Well, can we make fish images and put them on our car? We're not supposed to. It's an image. It represents something, and it's something we can look at for identification, and we can even worship it. Um, I felt really guilty because I had action figures, which are totally craven images. It is not a big deal to have action figures. I still have some in storage because they're really collector's items. But when you worship them, man, I would set them up on my shelf and look at them and rearrange them like a little type A geek that I am. And I'd be like, Star Wars toys. And then I'd think about getting the new Star Wars toy. And I'd pine for it. And I think we train our kids on this graven image stuff with action figures. I'm going to be really harsh here. Stuffed animals are things we make that represent things on earth and stuffed animals aren't evil and they're not a sin, but what do kids do with them? They give them personality and life. It's like we take five-year-olds and train them in on idol worship, right? And I was the worst. You can ask my kids, we'd go to the zoo and we'd go through the gift store and I would reach around behind and make the little beaver go, hello Grant, how are you? Are you going to take me home? And the kids would get so, and mom would say, no, you can't buy any stuffed animals. And the kids would start crying. And I'd be like, oh, come on. Beaver asked them if he could come home with them. So we have boxes of stuffed animals, right? Total sinner. Like, that's not how we're supposed to do that. This is not about art. And I want to just give a Bible verse for this in case people want to get all legalistic with this stuff, right? Exodus 25:18, coming up very soon, God's going to tell them to make golden cherubim and carve them to go with the worship in the tabernacle. So how does this work? You can make cherubim or you're not supposed to. You're supposed to make an Ark of the Covenant that's beautiful and gorgeous and carved, or you're not supposed to do anything like that. 
The difference is it's not the art here, it's the worship, it's the focus of the Urpish. You should not make for yourself a carved image. Do we do things for God? Absolutely. We've built cathedrals for God. But do we do it for ourselves? No. We're not supposed to do it for our own worship and our own whatever. We're supposed to do it for God. Even at that, that can become idol worship. At my dad's church, sorry, dad. Um, they had, it's, it's an old church in Owatonna, and they had a big choiry thing in the back, and then a little one-foot curtain that would be in front of the choir people so, you know, they could cover their knees or something. And the curtain got over decades, got crusty and nasty and like, you know, where the fabric starts to disintegrate. And eventually they just said, we got to replace the curtain. So they did. They put in a nice little plexiglass plastic thing or whatever. People left the church when they found out that curtain that their mother had made just got taken down and thrown away. And they got that upset about it. Well, did you make that curtain for yourself or did you make it for the king? if you made it for the king, you don't own it. You don't put a piece on it. I know one pastor in the Calvary Chapel, he won't even put up the Calvary Chapel dove because he doesn't want anything that's graven. And Well, props to him for going all in on this commandment, but that's not the point. The point is, do you have something that you own that's precious to you, like a little golden ring that you want just for yourself and your secret spaces, right? Those kinds of things are those graven images that take over. Is there anything in your life that you value more than you value God? If a thief came into your house and stole something, would it break your heart? Or would you just say that thief probably needs it more than me? Easy come, he's God gives, God takes away. Would you give the thief your coat too in addition to that thing you love? Why don't you take more, dude? If you're that needy, take it all, right? If there's anything in your home that you value, more than helping and loving other people, it's a graven image. Get rid of it. God's a jealous God. Do you see where the jealousy comes in there? God doesn't want to compete with your stuffed animals or your pets or other things like that. He doesn't want to compete for your love. He's a jealous God. He wants your love. Catholics, actually, I thought this was funny. If any of you have a Catholic background, you know this. Catholics delete commandment number two from their version of the Bible. Check it out. They actually take the commandment 10 and they split it into two commandments because they still have a Decalogue or 10 commandments, but the whole don't make graven images, they've just conveniently taken out. It's a tough one for them. They like their graven images. They worship their graven images. They wear their graven images around their neck and they use them for prayer and they do all sorts of things with graven images. That's what God's talking about. Don't put these things in the way. The problem with graven images is somebody has to make them and sell them. So you give the power of love to people that you have to buy it from, and only rich people can buy the good ones. Easter Island, they just kept building bigger and bigger statues until they didn't have farmers left to make food for them. And they died. They went extinct. Humans will worship to the point that they kill themselves when they do false images. It's horrible. Visiting the attention on the fathers, visiting is to pay attention to or attend to. God's going to watch this and he's going to tune into it because this kind of sin is so toxic. It's so that iniquity means perversity or depravity. It will infect an entire culture. We will build stadiums for our worship idols, right? And it'll infect a whole culture for generations. And God's going to watch that. 
and he's going to tune into it. It says to the third and the fourth generation, because idol worship has intrinsic consequences. It makes your society empty and meaningless and void of any meaning. And millennials, you're suffering from that because you're the third, fourth, fourth generation since our country has gone into this kind of mode, right? At a national level, there's, effect, there's consequences for this sin that will then corrupt whole generations. God will reveal this. Uh, Ezekiel 18:20 says, behold, all souls are mine. And he's talking about individuals. He's going to do this and then show mercy. So one way to read this is that God's going to watch this happen for three, four generations. Another way to read this, which is equally valid, is to say God's going to limit this particular sin to three, four generations. He will put an end to it because every soul is his. And because this is such a toxic, infectious kind of sin, that he'll get rid of it and he'll show mercy to thousands. He'll intervene at some point. There'll be a revival. There'll be a conquest. There'll be a Babylonian takeover that hauls people away. There'll be something that intervenes after three, four generations. Another way to look at that historically is societies can only handle three, four generations of true idol worship before they kind of disintegrate into immorality. And there's very few societies that don't follow that rule. The Romans, maybe the English, the French. I mean, there's very few societies that have endured past three, four generations of that kind of sin taking over. So until Christ comes, Romans 1.22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible of God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. Romans 1 kicks off with idol worship is a major problem in our society, right? And all we're doing is making these kinds of things happen. We just went to the Renaissance Fest. Dang, they need a little chapel at that place. It's turning into a pagan worship festival. Like, and it's pretty cool to see, but you're kind of sad too. You're just like, man, these people really, this is their life. It's not just a fun weekend. For them, it's like this all-in lifestyle thing. And they have the tarot card stuff coming out. And I don't remember that when I was a kid. And I'm thinking, man, you have your tarot card booths and give me a prayer booth right next to them. Like, I want to just be right hanging out and be like, you go to your tarot people, see if that works. Come to me and let's pray. And let's just give it over to the Lord. So that's why Zach and I are going to make monk outfits for next year. (laughs) Today's idols are so promising. They're so much more deceptive. I'm going to get even worse because I think we're... We've got to dwell on this a little bit. Don't hate the messenger. Today's idols actually create their own addictions. Neurologically, they kick in in some confessing ways. Facebook promises you the satisfaction of relationships, but it only delivers envy, angst, and gossip. Right? That's all it really gives you. Cell phones, they promise connectivity. They promise that you'll be united, but what they do is they create disconnection they actually divide you from the other people in the room, right? Games, this is my world, they promise adventure and thrill and joy, but man, they really just lock you into a glowing screen of atrophy and you just sit there and become pudding in the hands of your game, right? It's, it's an addictive quality in addition to being an idol. It promises so much, it gives so little back. Is it evil to play games? No. Is it evil to go on Facebook? No. Is it evil to do these things? But here's the law. If that's where you get your hope in your life and you thrill and you think you're doing God's work, you're kidding yourself. 
You're just going after things that are empty and you're getting in the God's way of doing things in your life. There's a principle here. Holiness. That's what God wants. He wants worship, reverence, and sacred areas of your life. Things that come before everything else. That's two commandments. Commandment number three. This is an easy one, right? We're all good on this one. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I'm thinking, I haven't said Jesus in vain in years. I'm totally golden on this one. And then I read it in the Hebrew. I'm not good on this one. No images. Serve God first. Don't swear. I'm thinking that's great. I can just watch my tongue and I'm good. All easy, but it's not the thing. There's a progression here. Love God only. Don't waste your time and life on idols. Now, don't take up the banner of Christ in vain. The word take is nasa in the Hebrew. It means to lift, to bear up, to carry, to exalt, and to accept. It's not about saying, oh, Jesus Christ, in vain when you're upset. It's about taking the name of Jesus Christ as your own and then not doing what you're supposed to do, right? That's a lot more than swearing. Again, nasa is a primitive root word. It means nasa in all contexts, in all flavors, in all sizes. So it's more than your verbal speech. It's about when you take the Lord your God, Jehovah Elohim, in case you don't get it. He uses two words there. Don't make Jehovah your God and do it in vain. Just don't do it. If you're going to be a sinner, just go all in. Be an all-in sinner and don't pretend that you're following God because you're just messing people up. Vanity in vain is shav. We've seen that word before. Emptiness, vanity, falsehood, uselessness, or selfishness. Selfishness. Don't become a Christian out of selfishness? Wait a sec. That makes me question my entire conversion moment because I totally accepted Jesus so I didn't have to go to hell. Right? That's in vain. That's seeking God for my own selfish reasons because I don't want to burn. Right? And that's a good reason to come to Christ. Again, I'm going to go back to what I said at the very beginning. They've gone through five, six steps before the law got introduced. I'm assuming everybody in this room were five, six steps down that path. Right? So, man, I got to wrestle with that. Jesus prays, and he does an interesting thing when you hear the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. Hallowed be your name. There's something sacred about Jehovah Elohim, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Hallow. Don't take it lightly. Don't make it a little thing in your life. Make it the thing in your life. And man, you're going to get persecuted for that. Your, fam- your own family will think you're nuts. Amen, hallelujah. Can you come be nuts with me? Right? Your friends, you're going to have some friends that don't want anything to do with an all-in Jesus person. Because they'll be like, you're a little freaky. And some of you have already encountered some of that because, praise the Lord, you're already all-in Christian-type people, right? Don't call yourself a Christian and then live in the world and dabble with the stuff of the world. That's a sin. And I'm guilty of it, too. I'm preaching to myself here. You spend a day in emptiness, that's vanity, that's waste. How many of us spend a day just doing nothing? That's a waste of time. It's vain. It's for yourself. I need my me time. What me time? You don't get me time as a Christian. I'm totally guilty of that, right? This is the second one that God will account for, the second commandment in this one. Does anything come before God in your life? Anything, anything at all? 
and I think most of us got to confess humbly, yeah, I do this all the time, Lord. I'm so sorry. I'm totally guilty. I know it's a downer, right? Matthew 23, if you really want to dig into this, I'm only going to give you one of them. There's a whole chapter of woes. You know, we like the blessed are these people and blessed are these people, and you're kind of like, yeah, that's kind of me. I'm good on that. But there's a whole thing of woes that come right there too with it. Woe to these people. And you read through that, and we we tend to not own that. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's the people with their doctorates. You hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You're just lining your own pockets. You're just sucking up pride. You're just proud to be a professor, a teacher, a Pharisee, one of those people. Shame on you and woe to you. It's hard, I'll tell you as a professor, it is hard to read the woes and not see my own heart be like, dang, that's exactly what's going on in academia right now. A lot of people that think they know better than the Word of God. It's a shame. Lukewarm Christians, Revelations 3.16. You know what I'm going to read. So then, because you are lukewarm, you are neither cold nor hot. It doesn't say God's going to be graceful with you. God's going to accept those things, that partway Christianity. It says, I will vomit thee out of my mouth. That's That's a colorful way to say, I'm going to not bring you into heaven with me. So... I even get to the, we go to a restaurant and like, you know, you have pray before your meal as a Christian. And I always think, man, if I pray before my meal, then I got to tip well. Because if you're going to represent God and hold out your banner in a restaurant, that tip better reflect that you're a generous Christian. Otherwise, you're taking his name in vain. You're calling yourself a believer and bringing attention to yourself as a good, righteous, holy person, but you're not being generous, Right? You put a fish on the back of your car, proclaiming your Christianity, trying to get all that positive feedback for it, and then you drive like a bandito and break the law. Taking the name in vain. You're taking up the banner of Christ and then acting in a way that's out of accord with godliness. I do it all the time. You are all thinking, is Sean looking at me? And I'm not. I'm looking at everybody, trying to at least. There's a principle here. Passion integrity, truth, courage, and that banner of Christ that we saw in the previous chapters. If you're going to do this, do it all in. So the first four commandments, we'll get to the fourth one here, all have to do with how we relate to God. The last commandments are how we relate to each other, and we'll get to those next week. But this is pretty tough so far, right? God first. Nothing gets in the way of God. Don't do this in vain. Don't say like they did in chapter 19, we'll follow the Lord, we're all in. Then the Lord gives the law, and you'll notice if you skim down to the end of the chapter, they're all like, no, Moses, you talk to God from now on. Like, we don't need any more of this, right? Filter this for me a little bit. Thank goodness we have Jesus as our filter, right? Because I'm guilty all the time, every day, so far, the first three. Commandment number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Not five. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your grates, nor your fluffy dog. But I added the fluffy dog part. That's not biblical. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Dang. We talked about the Sabbath a little a couple chapters ago. So, so far we have commandments that say God first, no idols, no fake believers, and now keep the Sabbath, and that's our God set. That's how we deal with God. And that's, at some level, love God. And Jesus sums it up like that. At some level, it's just love God. So keeping the Sabbath is not a new one. Back in chapter 16, we talked about the Sabbath in depth, right? And it came up with Passover. God made the Sabbath all the way back in Genesis on the seventh day he rested, which is what we reference here. Sabbath in the Hebrew, if you remember, means intermission. It means a break. You're going through a theater show down on Broadway and they have an intermission. You get up out of your seat, you go stretch your legs, you take a break. You're not going through the theater or the show that is the thing you've paid for right? In life, we need to do the same thing every seven days. We take a break. Whatever events and narrative we have in our life, we pluck ourselves out of that narrative and we take an intermission and we just relax. And that is for the Jewish people was Saturdays. Remember means zakar means to recall, to think of, to memorialize, or to mark. We're supposed to not only keep the Sabbath, we're supposed to remember memorialize or keep a mark. So what we're supposed to do on the Sabbath is remember God and what he's done in our life, what he's done in other people's lives, what he's done in the word of God. So as Christians, we kind of study the word of God on the Sabbath. It's part of what we're supposed to do is sit here and read the Bible, right? We're supposed to keep it. That word means kadash. For over a hundred times in the Bible, kadash means to sanctify something. So when you keep it, you kadash it, right? Not kabash, but kadash. You hallow it, you dedicate it, you make it holy, you prepare for it. I thought that was an interesting alternative meaning of kadash. And by the way, this is in the primitive root form. It means all of these things. So it's not just one or the other. We're supposed to actually prepare for the Sabbath. We're supposed to appoint the Sabbath, like make an appointment with God. And this is interesting when people, especially employers, want you to do something on a Sunday or whatever day you choose to be your Sabbath. A lot of people in the ministry make it Mondays. But if that's your Sabbath day, you say no to everybody in the world and yes to God. That's really hard to do. And it's the more you do it, the more you find people that really want that time as their own. The Sabbath is not not working. It's actually active. Kadash is an active verb. So you are supposed to do Sabbath. You're not supposed to just sit home and gel and watch TV all day. That's not Sabbath. That's a day for you. That's not a day for God. To attend to Sabbath means to actually maybe work at it. So if you're in the ministry, if you're on a worship team, if you help with the child care at your church, if you do something, you're actually working at and making something sacred for other people. So ministry on the Sabbath is totally part of keeping the Sabbath. God wants to show the world that anybody who takes one day a week and gives it to him, he can bless them crazily. Oh, I am doing Chick-fil-A this week. So I think this is really cool. When you see companies, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, and they say, you know what? We're not working on Sundays. Does Hobby Lobby cancel Sundays too? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They just say we're not doing Sundays. By any one of the financial models in the world, that means you make one-seventh less money than everybody else. But it never works that way. There's a spiritual law that trumps our financial models, right? And I just want you to hear a little bit about what's happened. This is a company, fast food, right? Weekends are a, that's a big day. You don't just not do Sundays if you're in fast food because everybody gets done with church and then we all break the Sabbath and we go out and buy food on a Sunday, making other people work. 
And by the way, did you catch where it said, not your manservant, not your female servant? You're not supposed to make other people work on the Sabbath either. Totally convicting, because what do I want to do after church every Sunday? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but they're not even open. So I'll go to other places that are open and cause other people to sin. So it's kind of like, man, do I love the Lord or don't I? And if I love the Lord, maybe I should feel convicted when I think it's okay to make other people work on a Sunday. That's horrible. But I do it all the time. Totally guilty. And I'm trying to do it less, yes? Every now and then I feel guilty enough to not want to go out to eat on a Sunday. (laughs) Business Insider. Chick-fil-A makes more revenue per restaurant than any other fast food chain in the United States with one-seventh less income. How does that happen? In fact, this is kind of cool. KFC has 4,000 stores and they make about a million dollars a restaurant per year. That's pretty good money and they got to pay people. Chick-fil-A has half as many stores, but they make about four plus million dollars per year per store. So they have half as many stores and make four times as much money. Spiritual law trumps financial laws, right? They are The fun part is reading articles that explain this phenomena. How does this happen? They say it's customers rave about the restaurants. Cleanliness, quick, convenient service, and hardworking employees. And you know what? They only pay their employees the industry average. So Chick-fil-A does not pay their employees any more money than anybody else. That doesn't explain anything, Business Insider. You just told me that they go to this restaurant because it's clean? Is that why we go to Chick-fil-A? I don't go there that much. I've only been there once or twice with a friend. But, because I don't go out to eat that much. It's, it's not that I don't like Chick-fil-A. I do, they have delicious chicken sandwiches. <laughs> the world says the reason for this is customer loyalty, customer first, they have great training programs. So does McDonald's. If you've worked at a McDonald's, people rave about their training programs. They have happy employees. Well, yeah, they get a day off every week. They don't even have a boss bugging them on Sundays. So they're loyal, happy employees. So they get six hard days of work that are somehow or another, their employees are four times more effective than other employees at other fast food chains. Are they four times better or is something else at work? Religion makes this a duty and a prison, a harsh and a pointless bond. That's not the point of keeping the Sabbath. Anybody who's not a believer is like, dang, you really restrict yourself. You put yourself under all these rules that's so legalistic. How do you, what do you mean you never go out to eat on Sundays? That's just legalism. No, that's not what it is. In fact, Jesus directly counteracts that with the Pharisees who started to lord over, over people, telling them what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, right? He directly counteracted that. For believers, this is about a relationship with God and expanding that relationship because we love the Lord. Shadow. I think God wants the rest of the world to watch people who keep the Sabbath and see what happens. I think that Chick-fil-A is blessed because they put God up like a banner and they don't even put God all over everything. They just say, we're not doing Sundays. That's not exactly this big stake in the ground protest movement. That's just saying we don't work on Sundays. It's making one thing sacred. And everybody knows why they do it. And God blesses them. And they're not short on money. So God does bring abundance in that situation. That doesn't mean if you keep the Sabbath, all your student loans will be paid off. It's not an exact formula. But try it and see what happens. Who knows, right? 
God loves to bless people that put him first. So I like that Chick-fil-A has these opening celebrations and the Business Insider article noted that people come from hundreds of miles to be at a new Chick-fil-A opening because the first hundred customers get free sandwiches for a year, but you have to be in that zip code. But people still travel to come to them just because of the excitement. It's like an Apple store opening, right? It's this amazing moment, games, entertainment, festive atmosphere, and a place where you can go eat, where you feel like you're giving your money to people that aren't breaking the Sabbath. So they're rewarded and blessed by it. I think Hobby Lobby has a similar story, but I didn't get into their business history. God's already outlined that Sabbath, when he did the the manna or the heavenly bread, here we get a justification for it. It's not just for the biological benefits. Our bodies actually need rest about once a week. So it's not just for that. God didn't need rest. Here the justification has to do with creation. God didn't need to rest on the seventh day. He's all powerful, right? So it's not like God got tired and said, oh, I need some me time, right? But he modeled it because if he can do something as big as creating the universe and then take a day off, so can we. There's nothing on a Sunday that should get in the way of keeping the Sabbath. But we come up with all sorts of things. And most of us come up with, I got so much homework to do, right? Skip the homework, get the lower grade and watch God do things in your life. Watch yourself get more efficient for six days and you don't even have to try. Just keep the Sabbath. God hallowed it. Man, the least we can do is hallow it too and say, I'm not going to do it. For those of you that were getting ready to do homework tonight, I'm really sorry. Keep the Sabbath next week. But make it part of your agenda, right? Plan for it and organize for the Sabbath so you can have that time. I think it's kind of cool that God says, if I can make the entire world, your busy life doesn't compare to mine. And that's the justification when he says, I made the world in six days and then I took Sabbath and made it sacred. Uh, Another piece on this is the word days, six days is yom. It's the same thing we saw in Genesis. When we studied Genesis, we read it like the Bible says it. The Bible says it was six literal days. This is one of those justification paragraphs. It uses the same Hebrew word. And in this particular passage, if you read yom as millions of billions of zillions of years, this passage makes no sense whatsoever. Because he doesn't expect us to go bazillions of years before we take our Sabbath. He expects us to take six literal days, and the wording is the exact same as what we saw in Genesis, right? So, yeah. This is another one where it just kind of hit me that we train in our kids from this young to break the Sabbath. When I grew up, one of the biggest, coolest things was Sunday morning cartoons, right? I'd get up early and start watching Sunday morning cartoons. But essentially, I'm getting up in the morning and making TV company executives work for my entertainment. And I'm not ministering and serving to God, especially if I skip church and watch cartoons all morning, which I did often when I was a kid, right? So we train little kids to break Sabbath. And I just think, man, that's harsh. Everyone has intrinsic value to God, not just those in charge. I like how he goes through and says, not your son, not your daughter, not your servants, not your animals. Everybody has worth in God's kingdom, even the beasts, right? Everybody gets the rest. Here's the other cool part about this particular commandment. Commandment number four is the only commandment not mentioned in the New Testament. Every other commandment is reinforced in the New Testament by Jesus himself or the disciples or in the epistles, every single one. This one is not. So what's going on? Can we break this one now? Because that's all I'm looking for is ways to break the rules, right? (laughs) 
This is the only commandment not found because in Romans 14 and Colossians 2, it's, this is a shadow of what we actually get. We get better than Sabbath. We get Jesus, right? So this day is a day of rest. In Jesus, every day is a rest for our soul. We're not in combat all the time because our rest is in Jesus Christ. And that's explained in Hebrews 4. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He is where we can take a break from all this troubles, anxieties, and worries of this world. And we get that every single day. So again, that's not a misread of this chapter because we used a primitive root word. So that primitive root allows for a very expansive interpretation of what this commandment is, right? So if Jesus is our rest and he's filled our soul, then we can take our eyes off of the things that make us anxious. Things either make us anxious, angry, or depressed when we look at the world. When we look at God, things make us restful. God's got it. I can relax. Psalm 119. Um, So Sunday is the Christian tradition for Sabbath, not Saturday, because Jesus rose on a Sunday. He met them and taught them and worked with them on Sundays. And it's the day in, in Acts 20, verse 7, it's the day of the week that the Christians would meet and talk, read the Bible, pray, worship, and celebrate together. So that tradition started right in the first generation. And if you look at this in that light, and I think this is one of those things that for me was a real struggle, especially in my 20s. We get to keep Sabbath. We don't have to keep Sabbath. As Christians, man, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Remember when Jesus said that? It's not a have to, it's a get to. And people that just go work, 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 and they do it seven days a week and they just pile it in, they're not really adding anything to their life. They're not building anything. If I never kept Sabbath, I would have never met Paul, right? And Paul's a good friend, but and I'm glad he keeps Sabbath too because that's where I can meet and talk with other believers, right? And there's no, there's no blessing in that kind of hurry in life. The problem is with all of these, these laws, we can be legalistic about them and try to enforce our legalism on others, or we can try to enforce that legalism and restrict ourselves, or... We can live in the freedom of Jesus Christ, like the New Testament says, that we are free from the bonds of the law and from sin. And we live somewhere in the middle of those two things, which is according to the conscience of the Holy Spirit. So we get to do Sabbath because the Holy Spirit says, man, I need that in my life. I want to take a breath. I want to do that. I want the sanctuary. So Sabbath is a sanctuary. It's not a prison, right? And that's, I think, the message of Jesus and the disciples and whatnot. So there's a principle here peace and rest, trusting that God has it, that you don't need that extra day of work to make ends meet, God will take care of everything you need, right? And it's getting your priorities straight. So that's four commandments, which I think I've broken almost every day of my life in my heart because of the primitive root use of those terms. It's about my heart too. When we get to adultery and murder, that's exactly how Jesus interprets the the commandments. It's not just if you've killed somebody, it's if you even think that somebody's less than you, and you're guilty of murder. You've already broken it. So at the primitive root of the first four, I'm guilty all the time. The good news is that in Christ Jesus, I don't, I'm not condemned by that law. I'm just encouraged to get better at doing those things the best I can so I get more and more like Christ. And if I can get more like Christ, I get more joy and peace and love. So I pursue the law because I want joy, peace, and love, not for selfish gain because my whole being wants those things right? If you don't love the Lord, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't do it. Don't be a Christian and don't call yourself a Christian. 
go do whatever you think will bring you joy and happiness for as long as you need to do it and come back to Christ when you're ready to give him your whole heart, mind, and soul. So if I see any of you next week, I'll be really happy that your hearts are kind of doing that. But even coming to Bible study, it's not like a have to. It should be a get to. And it's so easy for us as believers to start saying, okay, I'm going to make this a rule for myself. I have to be there every week. That's great if it's not at the point of idolatry. Because, my goodness, you can get the Word of God on a tape, and we live in an era where you can use the Internet, and you can hear some of the best teachers in the world. So why do you need to do Bible study? Because you get to, not because you have to. So, And at that point, it's this outpouring, joyful part of your life that you can't help but share with others. right? And that's the cool thing about it. So with that, say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, um, it's hard to study the, the law. I like last chapter better. I like, Lord, that you want a covenant with us and you want to enter into a contract with us where we become your children and you become our Father in heaven. Lord, you are the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God of the universe, and you want to have a relationship with us. That's amazing. Lord, help me to learn your nature through your law, that you love to be in relationship with us and you don't want to have an adulterous relationship. You don't want other idols. You don't want other gods before you or put in your face. You want to have that relationship with us individually, one-on-one, right now. Lord, if there's anybody in this room or anybody that we know that doesn't get that and doesn't understand your love and your compassion, help us to show it to them. Help us to love people without condition, to point them to you and to share our, our love for you and what we get out of our relationship with you, Lord. And it's not just all about that. It's about serving the king. Lord, we love you as our Lord and King because we know you're just. We know that if we're faithful in any way, shape, or form, you are more than faithful than what we deserve. Your mercy extends to thousands of people. Lord, we know that you won't let sin continue forever, Lord, that there is a judgment coming. So, Lord, we seek your law because we want to get closer and closer to you so that in the day of judgment, we can turn to Jesus Christ and he can be our mediator and he can stand in the gap and he can say, I know this person's heart and I know that they were working it out and I'll take their sin on my shoulders. So Lord, we just appreciate your law because we know what Jesus did for us. We know how much sin we have in our heart and we know the extent and the size of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Lord, we want to keep your Sabbath and it's so hard to do. And Lord, I just feel like that's one of the things in our society that is such a either a legalistic thing. You have to go to church. You have to do this. You have to do that. Or it's such a thing that's just blatant sin and defiance. Why bother with church? Why even do it? Why even go? Um, And Lord, we just pray that you help us to make it sacred. Help us to plan for it, organize for it, to be excited, to make it sacred, make it holy. Not for us, Lord, but because we love you. And we want to be in that covenant with you. Lord, help us to do those things. Lord, prepare our hearts for this week. Lord, I pray that for each person in this room, your Holy Spirit just works in some way this week where they can see the impact of your word in their life. Help them to think through their history, their lives, their works, their deeds. And Lord, just to be convicted in that not one of us are perfect. We have all fallen short of your glory. And Lord, we wouldn't know that if it wasn't for the law because we don't know what your glory looks like. So Lord, we just pray for that day when we can come to that point and, and confess to you our sins, not out of shame, Lord, but out of just desperation that we love you and we don't want them in the way of our love for you. Help our relationships with you to be pure, to be sacred, to be good, and to be holy. 
Bless each person. Be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.